take a minute, say good morning to someone, pass the peace of God. All right, we're gonna come back together, come back to our seats.
maybe. Uh, right now we're moving into our time of confession. And uh, I'm gonna ask everyone to just take a, a few seconds before we move into this to just kind of ponder what your week has been like. Uh, to be able to get a time, some time to just center yourselves and uh, just prepare for us to move into this time of corporate confession together as we confess as a body and as a family. And then after that, take a little bit of time of silence just to confess privately. Uh, whenever we do move into the time of prayer, I'm gonna encourage you just take whatever, whatever posture feels comfortable and safe with you to be able to take some time to just confess to God, to be present with him, and um, to be present in that moment. Uh, this uh, confession comes from Hebrews 4. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Just take a moment of private confession.
blessing of assurance. Almighty God, whose blessed Son was led by the Spirit to be tempted by Satan, come quickly to help us who are assaulted by many temptations. And as you know, the weaknesses of each of us, let each one find you mighty to save through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. The joy of the Lord is my strength and my song That sweet melody in my soul all day long No matter what comes, I'll just keep going on Cause the joy of the Lord is my strength and my song All around us there are troubles There are trials round every turn Though that cold wind won't stop blowing There's a fire 
in my bones and it keeps me going keeps me going keeps me going on the joy of the lord is my strength and my song that sweet melody in my soul all day long no matter what comes out just keep going on because the joy of the lord is my strength and my song to the trumpet sounds and the bells are ringing till he calls me home no I won't stop singing for every question there's an answer for every problem there's a prayer but greater is he who lives within me than all the trouble in this world and it keeps me going keeps me going keeps me going on the joy of the lord is my strength and my song that sweet melody in my soul all day long no matter what comes out just keep going on because the joy of the lord is my strength and my song till the trumpet sounds and the bells are ringing till he calls me home no i won't stop singing that joy down in my soul I've got the joy joy of the Lord I've got that joy down in my soul I've got the joy joy of the Lord I've got the joy down in my soul I've got the joy joy of the Lord I've got that joy down in my soul got the joy joy of the lord the joy of the lord is my strength and my song that sweet melody in my soul all day long no matter what comes out just keep going on because the joy of the lord is my strength and my song the joy of the lord is my strength and my song that sweet melody in my soul all day long if the devil don't like it then he can get gone because the joy of the lord is my strength and my song till the trumpet sounds and the bells are ringing till he calls me home no i won't stop singing till the trumpet sounds and the bells are ringing till he calls me home no i won't stop singing So this is the time when all the kids can make their way out the back, hang a left, their signs pointing everyone where to go. I've been at SOMA for around seven years, seven-ish years, a little more than seven years. So um, I am involved in the capital campaign, um, raising money for the building. Um, and so I wanted to give you guys an update. We had a $5,000 match. We have about 2,000 of that um, that is accounted for. So we have $3,000 left to go to fulfill that match. Um, and so with being here for seven years, seven-ish years, I've seen many iterations of SOMA, many stages of SOMA. And one of the things that has kind of been consistent throughout is that SOMA has continuously um, 
proved to be a church for the city um, and a church for the people in the city. And so within this capital campaign, um, with all the things that we're doing, we have the opportunity to do that yet again. So each of the things that we are restoring and fixing within this capital campaign allows us to continue to be a church for the city. So taking down the window coverings on the outside, replacing those with new ones, allows this building to not look like it's boarded up with fogged glass. So you can actually see that is a building that is thriving. We get to restore the gym downstairs. Um, the floor is severely uh, unlevel, <laughs> so it's not really even functional. You might twist an ankle down there. The basketball hoops are broken. Um, we want to be able to restore that space so that it can be used by the community. Um, that this building can be used by the community to its fullest, um, and as well as um, installing AC in key areas. If you were here in the summer, it gets freaking hot. <laughs> um, and so there's really no point in showering ahead of time. So we want to eliminate that for next year. We want this to be a place where people feel welcome. They feel um, excited to be in. This is a place of respite, a place of um, comfort, of relaxation, not where you're going to go and it's hotter inside than it is outside. So all of these things really do allow Soma Downtown to continue to be a church for the city. Um, and with this $5,000 match, um, we get to continue to aim to hit that goal of allowing us to do all these things. So 2,000 of those dollars have been accounted for and we have 3,000 left um, for that $5,000 match. So we would ask you if you have already given, that is great but just know that there's $3,000 left and that we would love for you to be a part of it. Um, every dollar that you give is obviously doubled because it is a match. So if you think, well, I could only give $10, that's great because it's actually 20. If you can only give 50, that's great because it's actually 100. So um, we would ask that you um, consider how you could be a part of that um, and consider how um, you could be a part of furthering SOMA and it's being a church for the city. So thanks so much. Um, hi, my name is Ian Brown. I'm a Covenant member here at SOMA. I'm very excited today. Um, we have a few um, people who are going to take their membership vows. So if you could come up here, um, if you're taking your vows today. Um, we practice covenant membership at Soma because we believe that church is a family. And while family is more about how you live towards the body um, than, than what you just say, uh, scripture repeatedly shows the importance of a public decoration and the accountability of those statements um, of saying, I am covenanting to this body. Um, and so that's sort of the, the setup for what we're doing here today. Um, so I'm going to actually pass this mic down and have each of these people introduce themselves, um, say their name, their missional community, and what they do during the week. Hi, I'm Gabby Burton. I um, am a part of Emerson Heights MC, and I work at Lilly. Hi, I'm Satchel Burton. I'm a part of the Emerson Heights MC, and I work here. I'm Carly, I'm in the St. Clair MC, and I'm a teacher. I'm Ian Frost, I'm in the Emerson Heights uh, MC, and I'm a junior application developer. 
All right, so now, all of you being here present to make a public profession of faith are to assent to the following declarations and promises um, by saying, I do, um, by which you enter into a solemn covenant with God and this church family. Do you acknowledge yourselves to be sinners in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure and without hope, except for his sovereign mercy? If so, please respond, I do. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners? And do you receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered in the gospel? If so, please respond with, I do. Do you now resolve and promise in humble reliance upon the power of the Holy Spirit that you will live a life of practicing the way of Jesus, being quick to repent and reconcile when you fail? If so, please respond, I do. Do you promise to love and serve the brothers and sisters in this body, bearing their burdens and encouraging them in their discipleship and calling to the best of your ability? If so, please respond, I do. Do you submit yourselves to the accountability and unity of this body and promise to pursue its purity and peace? If so, please respond, I do. Um, now, congregation, please join me in um, praying for these members up here. Um, if you want, um, if you're comfortable, you may reach out your hand, um, sort of symbolically laying hands on them. Heavenly Father, um, we approach you today um, praying for Gabby, Satchel, Carly, and Ian. Um, Father, I just pray that um, these people before me would grasp how high, how wide, how deep um, your love is for them, that this love would overflow from their lives and into our church family. Father, empower them to hold fast to this covenant. Lord, you are the keeper of your promises. God, I'm so honored um, to be here today facilitating this for these, for these special people. Um, Lord, I just pray that together, um, with this entire body, please just give us the perseverance to run the race that's set out before us, um, looking to you, Jesus, as the author and perfecter of our faith. Amen. With these public promises and through the power vested in me, through the Holy Spirit, I now declare you as covenant. Well, there is an American animated filmmaker named Andrew Stanton who uh, told a story of how he came up with the idea for his first film. And the story goes like this. He said he was with his son at one of his, his son was recently walking and kind of growing, and they decided to take him to the beach. And at the beach, his son was filled with awe and wonder and joy about starfish and looking for seashells and running into the water. And he said he could not enjoy it the entire time because he just constantly saw the lens of all the dangers and all the things he was telling his son no to and all the things that he kept trying to protect him from. He said it was this horribly stressful experience. And then when he got done, he realized that his son, though still in spite of this all, had somewhat of fun, but like the entire morning, the entire experience that he had thought of, like coming, connecting with his child, enjoying something fresh and new, had been missed because of his fear of what would happen to him. He said from that experience and him thinking on that, he eventually 
co-wrote and directed his first film, Finding Nemo, the story of a son who was wanting to experience the world and the life, but a father who is scared of what's going to happen until he realizes his fear of missing out on his son is actually what's causing him to miss out on his son. Because this is where the people of God are in our series of the book of John, in that they are in a place where Jesus is going to reveal, I think, maybe one of the most startling realities that we see in the Gospels. And that is, there is a real clear tendency for us to miss out on what the Father's doing. And not only that, it actually is somewhat more easy to miss out the closer you are to it, which is something for people who find themselves in church or people who call themselves Christians or people who are pastors really have to regularly wrestle with a little bit of sobriety that the people in the Gospels that are portrayed as immediately seeing what Jesus is doing are typically those who are the prostitutes and the tax collectors and those who would be considered far from God and the ones who are regularly described as having a strong proclivity to miss it are the ones who had their entire Old Testament memorized. And so Jesus is regularly going to tell stories about the kingdom of saying, like, hey, it's like a small little seed that's smaller than anything else, but it grows and it grows and it grows and eventually becomes the biggest tree of any in the forest. But it's really small to begin. Or he'll talk about the fact that the kingdom is maybe not what you're expecting. And the more that you're looking for your expectation to come of what God is doing, you might actually miss what God is doing. And so, last week, uh, we talked about two healings, which Jesus heals a Roman official's son by him just saying the words, hey, go, and your son will be healed. And the next day, the Roman official leaves and realizes that his son was healed at that same hour. And then following that, Jesus is by what they call the Pool of Bethesda, and there's a lame, crippled man who had been there for 38 years trying to get in this pool that he believed would heal him. And then Jesus asks him, do you want to get well? And he heals him. And he tells him to pick up his mat and to walk. And it says that the Jewish leaders asked the man, who told you to get up and pick up your mat? Because it was the Sabbath. And really quickly, let's just, whether you are familiar with the concept of the Sabbath of scriptures or you need a review or you've never heard it before, let's just get into what they were thinking, the Jewish leaders, of when they see a man who is healed. Maybe they see him healed, maybe they don't. It's unclear. But they see a man picking up and carrying his mat, and they say, hey, who told you to do this? And he says, the man that healed me. Well, who was that? He says, I don't know. And eventually Jesus sees him later. And then they realize it's Jesus, and they're angry for Jesus healing on the Sabbath. And so here's what's going on in the Sabbath. The Sabbath is first introduced when the Israelites are freed from slavery in Egypt, and they're wandering out in the wilderness to the promised land. They are provided for by manna, and manna is this food that is going to sustain them uh, daily, and so it's the sense that God is 
giving them food in the wilderness in a place where you normally wouldn't just find food appearing. We said, hey, every morning there's going to be this bread or this manna type thing. Manna, just the word means what is it? We don't even know what it was. Uh, it was like the whatchamacallit candy bar or something like that. But either way, uh, it was just this random thing that they find, but it's going to sustain them and they're going to find it every day. But they say, hey, on the sixth day, I want you to gather two portions of manna and not gather any the seventh day because I want you to realize I'm not like Pharaoh. I'm not a slave driver. The whole story of the Exodus uh, and the people of God at Israel was that they were continually made to work and make bricks, and then eventually they were given, not given straw, which was a crucial ingredient, and because they, they say, hey, make more bricks, but have less materials, and you need to work, and you need to be pressed harder, and the more that Pharaoh would press them and persecute them, they actually, the more they grew and throve and, and, and expanded. But still, God comes out of that and says, hey, I'm not a slave driver, and so I want you to take a day every day, or every week, like I rested on the seventh day in creation. I want you to rest and reflect on the fact that your life is not held together by you. It's held together by me. And for that reason, I don't want just you to rest. I want your household to rest. I want your servants to rest because I don't want you resting, but yet you really thinking, but yes, it's my passive income or my servants or whatever that is actually holding my life together because he says it's not what's holding your life together i can take those in a second it's me and so then in the ten commandments one of the commandments is to remember and honor the sabbath and keep it holy for the people of god to regularly remember regularly slow down every week in the midst when you could be getting more done, you could be getting further ahead, you could be getting more letters behind your name, you could be getting more certifications to yourself. I want you to stop and recognize, yes, there's going to be people that get all those, but if I don't provide for you, then you don't have anything. And so there's this regular rhythm uh, that they're supposed to do each week that frankly they don't really do all that well. At least we get the sense throughout the Old Testament when prophets are coming and saying, hey, you're not obeying the commands, you're extorting the poor, you're not remembering my Sabbath. That they continue to rely on their own ability to hold their lives together. And after over 400 years of prophets coming, eventually they are exiled from the land. And one of the things that is said is like, hey, you, when you come back, you're going to keep my commands. And so while the people of God are in exile, they start figuring out how they are going to more effectively keep the commands next time. And they start thinking through, okay, how can we keep the Sabbath and make sure that we don't miss it again? And so they start putting in all these ways of like, this is how you know if you've broken the Sabbath. And so anything that resembles work. So they said you can't stir mud on the Sabbath because when people made bricks, they would have to stir mud. So any stirring of mud is off limits. You can't break stitches. You can't break more than two stitches on the Sabbath because breaking, sewing, making clothes was part of working, so you can't do that. There was a radius of how far you could walk. You cannot lift things on the Sabbath. So when Jesus tells a man to pick up his mat and walk, it is, in their view, violating the Sabbath. Now, to the original Torah commands, there is no commands about picking things up, about radiuses of walking, about breaking stitches, about, about stirring dirt into mud. There's simply the concept of remember the fact that you slow down, you rest, you find your sustenance, not in your ability to keep the plates spinning, but trust for one 24-hour period every, every week, I keep them spinning. 
And so Jesus, in this moment, gives life on the Sabbath, and it makes the religious leaders mad because it's broken their tradition. But not just that. It also says in verse 18, read with us with me, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Not only, uh, not, uh, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So the interesting thing is Jesus calling God father is not necessarily the problem here. There actually is a history in the Old Testament of Israel calling God the Father, the people of Israel calling God their Father about ten-ish or so times. God will be referred to Father in the Old Testament. It's actually not overwhelmingly much compared to a lot of his other titles, but it is one thing that has been said. In fact, even in the Exodus, God comes and says to Moses, tell Pharaoh that you have enslaved my son Israel. And so there was some concept that just him saying father and even my father though that in itself may have been more of the issue that was starting to really get under their skin because the question that comes up a lot of times if you're studying scripture studying the passages the new testament is is jesus claiming to be god because here's a little thing that you need to know the phrase jesus is god does not appear in your new testament it does not appear in the scriptures. And so people will often make the right challenge. Like, well, does Jesus ever challenge or say that he is God? It says that he is the son of God. But at the same time, we often talk about ourselves in those terms. Like, I am a child of God. I'm a son, a daughter of the king of the most high. Is he just referring to it in that way? In fact, if you take the phrase son of God to them, that actually didn't mean that you were necessarily this direct kinship of God, but rather it was a reference that you were of the line of David, that the line of David is called the Son of God, meaning that was this chosen line that would restore as the Messiah the people of God to God. And so the Son of God was in the line of David. So him saying, I'm the Son of God, at points, is not really as big of a deal to them as we think it is. I will say, however, the idea that he calls himself the Son of Man, which is the most popular term Jesus refers to himself as himself, was a way bigger deal. The Son of Man is referring to Daniel 7. In Daniel 7, it's this picture of the, Daniel receives a vision, and he sees God in the heavens, and then he sees this presence from the throne of God descend, and it says that it's one like a Son of Man, meaning like it's God, but it's also human. And a, this one that is God, yet human, sits on the throne and rules with God, both God and humanity ruling together, therefore uniting what was put forward in the garden but was never realized with the first people, is now realized in this person, this God-man sitting on the throne. And so when Jesus went around saying he's the son of man, that was him. I mean, if you want a moment where he's saying, I am God, that is it in their language. I mean, that would be the equivalent. I heard this uh, analogy, and I think it's helpful. It'd be like us asking like, somebody, like, are you Batman? And him saying, I am the Dark Knight. And us being like, really clear because that phrase, that name, means something more than just he has dark armor in a King Arthur's court or whatever. Like, it is this phrase that means, no, I am who you think I am. 
And so that is our moment of Jesus actually saying. But, but in this story, in the story of John, what is John's regularly going to emphasize is actually Jesus' oneness with God. In fact, the word Jesus being one with God shows up 12 times, an interesting uh, specific number throughout the Gospel of John. And then there's other stories in which it likens his oneness to God, this being one of them. The word that Jesus is one with God doesn't appear here, but the concept of his being one with God does because he says, hey, my father is working, and I am working. God's work, what he's doing, he works on the Sabbath. He keeps everything together on the Sabbath. Yes, maybe you shouldn't be doing work on the Sabbath. You need to be trusting in him. But my father is keeping the world together, holding molecules together, having planets spin, rising stars, doing all that stuff. And I am too. The implication, I'm doing what God's doing. I'm holding this, and get this together and giving life even on the Sabbath. And then he goes through all these other things, just equating himself with who he is. He says, hey, the Father has the power to give life, and I give life. I just gave life to the Roman official's son. Uh, I just gave life to this man who has been paralyzed for 38 years. He gives life, and I have the power to give life. He says, hey, the Father doesn't even judge, but he gives all judgment to the Son. He gives me the ability to judge or condemn or to free. I mean, and that's the whole point he's making with the paralytic man who walks and he sees him later in the temple. He says, hey, your sins are forgiven now. Like, go and, so that, and sin no more that nothing, may, no, nothing worse may happen to you. Hey, I'm forgiving you of your sins. And here's the concept of if someone is forgiving sins of humanity, they have to be the one who was primarily offended to be the one to forgive. Like, the way that you might think of this is if you are driving in your car and you are just sitting at a four-way stop minding your own business and someone comes and just like you know doing 45 miles an hour just rams into the back of your car and then for whatever reason gets out and pulls out a sledgehammer and begins sledgehammering the remainder of your car and as you crawl out and get away they light fire to your car uh, and then, just, you know, to really sell the point, uh, they, they bend over and drop a deuce right on your car. You know, let's just go there. And, and I drive by, like the police come, they've apprehended this man, um, and they're taking him into custody, and I stop the car, I see this car that's in flames, and this man with his pants down being taken to a police officer's car, and I, I stop and I say, wait a second, wait a second, what's happened here? And they explain to me everything that's happened. And I listen and I say, okay, I hear your side. I hear your side. I turn to the man and I say, hey, your debt is forgiven. You can go free. Now, if you are there, you are sitting there thinking like, you're, you're not a part of this. Like, you don't factor into this story at all. They've burned and defecated on my car and you were just passing by, so you don't have the authority to forgive them. The only reason I have authority to forgive them is if it's actually my car. Like maybe like we find out, like, no, I had given you the car. And not only that, like maybe this is like my child, like this is my family, like the one who's primarily hurt by this is me. Then I have the authority to come and say, hey, you're forgiven. So the fact that Jesus steps in and says to people, hey, everything that you've done against the God of the universe is forgiven is making the point, I am the one who was primarily offended by your sin, 
therefore I have the ability to release you of your debt. And so constantly, John in his gospel is going to reflect on the Shema, which is this text in Deuteronomy, which Jewish leaders or Jewish people would say every day in the morning and the evening, the Lord, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, and love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your body, your strength, all this thing that's going to eventually be picked up by Jesus in the greatest commandment. And this idea that the Lord your God is one is this thing that you actually see the Shema be referenced multiple times in the book of John, except it's Jesus saying, yes, the Lord, your God, and I am one. There is one God, and I am one with God. So yes, while the phrase, Jesus is God, does not appear like that, which is just what we, like, that's how we expect things to be laid out. Like, there's just, like, a clear declarative statement, and then it is argued and supported with evidence. And that's just not the way that they went about showing that this was what Jesus was saying. It was really clear to them. It says, hey, this is the point where they start all the more trying to kill Jesus. Because it was really clear. He said, hey, my father's working and I'm working. If you honor me, you honor the one who sent me who is the father. If you don't honor me, you've missed who's bringing the kingdom. But Jesus does all that. He brings in all his authority, all the sense of this is who I am, to give them a clear message that actually sometimes I think even I miss. Like I read this and I, this whole teaching and it's like it's very like it's most things that John writes. Like we went through a series in First John last year and there was just a lot of like circular conversation and coming up with these same topics that we talk about this and then we talk about this and we're coming back to this and. And John writes in this really circular, interesting way. And that's kind of what you see in Jesus' speech here. And you're like, it's easy to lose what he's actually saying. Because, yes, he is saying, hey, I've been sent from God. Father and I are one. I'm doing what he's doing. But then you miss the other message he's saying to them sometimes, or at least I do. And that is, be careful of missing what the Father is doing. You have this whole thing going on with your Sabbath. You have this whole idea, this paradigm that is based in something good. You really, really want to make sure that you no longer break the Sabbath because I came in with my prophets and told you, hey, you are not trusting in me. And so you are trying to find ways to make sure that everyone is practicing trust in you. That's the crazy thing about the stuff that the Pharisees come up with or the religious leaders come up with. A lot of times they are actually very good intentions. But he said, your strain to try to get everyone and yourselves to prove that you're trusting in me and honoring my Sabbath, and you're missing the fact that I just gave life on the Sabbath. The kingdom is now here. There's coming an hour, he says. Truly, truly, I say, verse 25, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. 
For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Hey, I am giving life right now. The kingdom is coming right now. And you're missing it. You've got this earthly paradigm of how you are going to see the kingdom come. And I'm here to tell you that I see a completely different paradigm. And I want to invite you to go back and look at it again. Because the reality is, is Jesus is actually very invitational through this passage. Sometimes I read these things and think he's like being very condemning. Uh, all the moments through, what, verse 30 through 35, when he says, hey, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, uh, as I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me, I alone bear witness about myself. My testimony is not true. There is another one who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to, uh, sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. This is John the Baptist, who we talked about a while back. Now that testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for his light for a while. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For his works, for the works of the Father has given to, uh, me to accomplish the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. He says, hey, I want you to go back and think about John the Baptist, who was this great prophet, who you guys even liked. Like, you realized he had some wisdom. He was this voice crying out in the wilderness. And go back and read about voices crying out in the wilderness and then who they're going to point to. And then even go look who John was pointing when he said, hey, here's the Lamb of, the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John had something to say about me. He's not saying, hey, you've missed it and therefore you'll never get it. He's saying, hey, no, go back and think about what John said and rethink what you're thinking see me doing and what you're doing. Or he says later, verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they who bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I always read that with this tone of like saying like, yeah, you read the scriptures, but you don't, you miss the fact that they point to me and therefore you are reading them in vain, which might be true, might be some of his tone, but I was challenged to hear his tone differently this week as I was looking at this passage and they were saying, no, think of the fact that his tone is actually like saying like, hey, you're reading the scriptures, you know the scriptures, look back at them one more time and see if you don't see the idea of one coming who is going to start bringing the kingdom of life and peace and joy and see if you don't see that in my work right now. What I love about Jesus is this, this clear, regular invitation not to say, hey, you've missed it and you can never get it, but rather, I invite you to re-examine the ways that you may have gotten so caught up in seeing the kingdom that you're missing the kingdom. And so that's just, I think, a great way for us to just take a moment to reflect. 
is because I can very, I love to think of this passage when I think about like how other people do this and other cultures have done this. Oh, those dumb Pharisees. And I realized, no, this was recorded and preserved in the book of John so that I and you, you and I, I think would be grammatically better, uh, would sit back and read it and reflect on are there ways I'm so zealous, so eager, so wanting to see the kingdom that I might, if I'm not careful, just in fact miss it actually coming. I mean, Jesus said to them, hey, the word of God's not abiding in you, which that word is the same logos, which we talked about in chapter one, which is like this idea of like God's wisdom, his reason, the way that he made the world, like all of the wisdom of God, which was meant to be meditated on in the scriptures and grown in our hearts so that we would actually have the mind of God. He said, like, that's not in you. You don't see the way that I'm seeing things. You're trying to do all the things, but you've missed it because it's all pointing to this person in Jesus who's bringing the kingdom, and you've missed that. But he's like, who is he saying this to? He, again, he's saying this to people who have the Old Testament memorized, that have spent their entire lives reflecting on it. And it just makes me, like, regularly have to ask, how are ways that you or I get caught up in services or programs or classes or systems that get set up or podcasts or this teacher or this book or this line of thinking or I'm going to put these practices into my life and all of them are not necessarily even bad. But I can get so focused on this thing that I miss going back to the simple idea of the kingdom coming like a seed and bearing fruit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, and goodness, and faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. I can miss it giving me regularly a heart of repentance, and humility, and taking the place of a servant, having the mind of Christ. And so, that's simply the question, I think, that I don't have a ton more to wrestle with, but I think that that in itself is just what I want us to just take a couple minutes here and just wrestle with. Because verse 41 through 44, read that with me. Jesus says, I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the one and only God. What I hear Jesus saying in that is, I think really pertinent to us, is sometimes we can get really focused on people and numbers 
and hit and streams and commitment cards and baptisms. And again, not that any of these are wrong necessarily, but there's just a subtle shift of doing these things to bring the kingdom and getting really focused on these things and missing the kingdom. I know a lot of people listen to podcasts, uh, The Rise and Fall of Marcel. Um, what I really appreciate uh, that Mike Cosper, who made the podcast, did, and I, though I think sometimes gets missed, is he does a lot to try to regularly say, hey, this isn't just a story about one church. This isn't like a unique church. In fact, this is kind of the story of the American church as a whole and the fact that we can very easily get really excited about something that's growing big and fast and famous and having all of this quote-unquote fruit, but never actually sit back and reflect on is the fruit that it's producing the fruit of the Spirit and the fruit of repentance and the fruit of humility, or is it a lot of numbers? But yes, maybe good things happen from that. Maybe you were someone who became a believer from a really impactful ministry such as one like that. It's not to say that God cannot do and use anything. It's just simply saying that that doesn't necessarily mean that's him blessing it. That doesn't mean that fruitfulness, big numbers, something that's really happening is actually life coming. Actually the kingdom. I quote again and again, and I just regularly come back to um, a quote from a pastor in St. Louis, Zach Eswine, who, I changed the quote a little bit, he writes it to pastors, but I think it goes to all Christians. In fact, maybe you could say it to all people. We said, hey, Christians are often encouraged to do something big, fast, and famous. But the kingdom always chooses to come in the small, often overlooked, things done for a long period of time. I mean, big, fast, and famous feels really good. And it's exciting and you feel all this energy and it builds up big staffs where people can get paid. And I'm not even trying to like say anything about wrong about big staffs or anything like that or big budgets. I'm just saying again, it can be really, really hard to distinguish that subtle difference between I'm excited about seeing the kingdom come and I'm excited about this and missing it. Uh, social justice is another, I mean, it's been a big thing that I think people have been appropriately trying to, like, think through how are we create a more just society? How do we think through justice in, in terms of those who have been treated unjust or in the past? But social justice can and often does really get reduced down to just saying the right things on social media. Or having numbers that if you dig into the numbers, maybe the things that are meant to bring justice actually aren't really even bringing justice to those who you are trying to bring it to. I'm not saying, bringing justice in this world is really complex, and I'm not saying like every organization who tries and ends up like benefiting, not the main targeted group is who they wanted to benefit as a 
like that's just a thing that's going to continue to happen because it's really hard to do justice in this world but it's also sometimes we're really content to be like well the numbers look good regardless of actually who the program is really helping because I can't tear this thing down and start over there's too many people's livelihoods who depend on it oh here we go this is just to prove uh, this is not uh, punk rock Kent pointing his finger at everyone else. Um, I had a thought this week I'm not proud of. I was talking with another ministry leader in our neighborhood who was telling me about an opportunity of serving a neighbor in our neighborhood who really is in need of a lot of help. Um, just with housing and with um, just a lot of things that they can't quite care for for themselves. And I immediately thought, this is, uh, I'm just, this is uh, the honesty that I'm not proud of. My immediate first thought was, yeah, but that'd be like a small project. We could only get a couple people involved and therefore it wouldn't really be this big exciting thing for the whole body. And so maybe we shouldn't do it. And it was like this moment of the Spirit pushing me to this idea of this text and saying, is it, is it about bringing life? Or is it about the church being excited and feeling like they did something? And I had to repent and say, man, there's ways that I can get so focused on, man, God's doing this through this thing that I'm doing and neglect bringing life to people. I often have just constantly thought through this process, even as we put forward our capital campaign and talk about the building. It's just something that we always want to hold with a loose hand of saying, yes, we do think that God is wanting to use physical space to serve a physical needs of a physical community and that means investing in certain things so that the building can be safe and usable and welcoming but I also it's again just that subtle place that I have to hold it in my heart am I wanting to do it to build up this building or am I wanting to build up this building to see life come into the neighborhood and some days it's one some days it's the other and I have to regularly wrestle with which one is today and repent of one while still moving towards bringing life. Christians are often encouraged to do something big, fast, and famous. But the kingdom always chooses to come through the small, often overlooked, things done for a long period of time. Again, Jesus' point is my point here to conclude, which is just not to say you've missed it and to self-flagellate and self-punish, but rather to just say, hey, I invite you to just re-examine how are ways that you're missing it 
and then re-engage with my kingdom in bringing life. It's not to say, oh, wow, look at you, wicked pastor who's more focused on what you're doing. It's just to say, hey, no, repent of that, and then join me again in what I'm doing. Jesus comes to ask not just the paralytic man, but also to invite the Jewish leaders in this text, do you want to get well? Do you want to be a part of what I'm doing? Receive me and find life. So that's our place to reflect in the moment of communion. As we do communion on a week-in, week-out basis, it is just as much a time to come and receive the forgiveness of God as also a time to just contemplate my heart. We did this in Ash Wednesday service on Wednesday. We just took time to meditate. Hey, where are just ways, just subtle ways, that I'm more focused on seeing God bless what I'm doing rather than me join him in what he's doing? And again, not to take this point of then just feeling so terrible about it, but rather as we prayed about on, on Ash Wednesday from Psalm 32, blessed is the man who has confessed his sin and therefore received forgiveness. That it is a joy to confess, to repent, and simply say, yeah, I was missing it, and I just want to reshift. And so that's what I invite you to do in this moment of communion. There'll be stations here. Uh, there'll be a place where you can break the bread, tear a piece, and dip it in the cup, including a gluten-free station in the middle. For logistic purposes, we always invite you to come down center aisles and return down side aisles. And this can be just a time to patiently reflect, are there ways where I'm missing it? Maybe big, maybe small. And inviting just to refocus and just realize this isn't condemned, like, oh my gosh, how could you do that? The story seems to say we all tend to do that again and again and again and again and again. And praise be to God that we have a, a Messiah who comes and invites us to come and say, hey, just come back in. I'm still doing it, and you are still welcome. And so come, take of the body broken for us so that that might be true, and the blood shed for us so that we have all perfection in Christ not because we bring the kingdom perfectly, but because he has brought it perfectly, he has given it to us, and now invites us to play. Let's pray. Father, I pray for your spirit to um, just lovingly, gently, and joyfully uh, convict us where there are areas where we get more focused on what we're doing than what you're doing, um, and then invite us to re-examine where are the ways that you're bringing life that we can be a part of. Where are ways that maybe we're a part of bringing life, but we just need to shift the way that our heart is seeing it. And Lord, I pray for us to be people who do this on the regular, not as trying to forever stir up a guilt trip, but rather just regularly rejoicing in the fact that you invite us back again and again and again, and that, like we sing, we're prone to wander but you're in the business of calling us back home and calling us back and slowly but surely maturing us as one body into the image of your son, Jesus, who is bringing the kingdom. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.